Father, I thank you for your word that leads us and guides us. Uh, no matter how we feel and no matter um, what, what's going on with our life or our mind, your word is living and powerful and able to speak to us what we need because uh, we don't know what we need, but you do. You know, you're smarter than we are. You are wise. You know all things and you care about us so much and you promise us that in your word and through your word, we would receive all that we need uh, in our spirit, in our soul for life and godliness. And so, God, we, we come to you with that expectation and that hope that uh, you would speak to us through these scriptures that we're going to look at. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We've been going through the book of Mark uh, verse by verse, and we are now in chapter 14, verse 32 through 42. We're going to look at these 10 verses today. Uh, this is really holy ground of scripture. This is one of the most intense and um, and uh, dark portions of scripture, but vitally important for us to understand uh, what is being said and what is being described uh, that's almost undescribable, uh, but here it is. So the title of today's sermon is called Crushing Olive Garden. Crushing Olive Garden. So uh, when I first said that, uh, I thought of uh, when I take my kids to Olive Garden and they just crush those breadsticks and salad. And we get so many free salads and breadsticks uh, along with our meals, but it's always a very satisfying meal when you crush some Olive Garden. But uh, it's really a play on words because we're going to be talking about a, a garden where um, uh, they grew olives and crushed olives called Gethsemane. That's what we're going to be looking at today, uh, where Jesus is going to be crushed as the Son of God, uh, crushed for us and for our sins. So let's go ahead and get into it. Um, uh, you, you ever heard that phrase, this is going to hurt? This is gonna, Like maybe when you, you have a Band-Aid. And your mom or your dad says, we're going to rip that Band-Aid off and it's going to hurt, right? Or if you've ever gotten a broken nose, uh, sometimes they have to re-break your nose in order to uh, set it right uh, so it doesn't look crooked for the rest of your life. Um, and so being hurt is something that we all sometimes have to go through. And sometimes a parent has to hurt their son or their child. Uh, for their own good. You know, why would a father ever hurt their own son? Um, I was, I asked my boys uh, right before this, if I ever hurt them and Corbin, you know, with tears in his eyes uh, said, well, last year you used to step on my toes every day. You would step on my toes and hurt me. And with this big crocodile tears, um, I'm obviously exaggerating, but uh, he's, he did say I would hurt him by stepping on his toes all the time. So I guess my negligence uh, really hurt Corbin last year. And for that, I am truly sorry, Corbin. <laughs> He's laughing over here. Do you forgive me? Sure. Okay, good. Um, I also uh, recall a time when, um, uh, and maybe this is a fake story, but you can decide. Um, I, I went to the doctor once and, and I pointed at, I said, doctor, my whole body hurts. You know, everything. I, I, whenever I touch my toe, Oh, it hurts. Anytime I touch my knees, they hurt. Anytime I touch my stomach, it hurts. I, if I touch my cheeks, it hurts. Every time I touch my head or my ears or even my eyes, 
it hurts. Doctor, can you please tell me what's going on with me? And the doctor simply replied, you have a broken finger. Boom! (laughs) (laughs) Terrible. All right. Thank you, boys, for the booze. That, That helped me. All right. So why would a father ever cause their son pain? Or, or you know, what we're going to see today is, is God the Father causing his son pain. And it's going to amaze every person, every angel that watched this happen, I'm sure was amazed. This is this very serious question that deserves a serious answer. And we're going to start actually way back in Isaiah chapter 53 to discover how... Um, how plainly this is explained to us in God's word. And again, Isaiah was written 740 years before Jesus was born, but it was actually written directly about Jesus. It's a prophecy uh, written, you know, given by God to this prophet that describes exactly what's going to happen when Jesus, the Messiah would come. Um, So this was written 740 years ago. Do you remember what was happening in this world 740 years ago from, from today? Well, it was the 1280s. Uh, you know, maybe you can remember back to your history class, probably not uh, studying the 1280s. But basically, what was happening 740 years ago from today, uh, the popes were basically ruling Europe, um, and they were pretty bad at it. And then Genghis Khan was ruling Asia, And, you know, the Mongols were running wild. Marco Polo was living in China. Uh, And so if you can think, if you think that was a long time ago, that's the the distance and time that we're talking about here. That's how long ago God had planned and and set in motion the events that would eventually lead to this night where Jesus is going to start going through the hurting or the crushing of, that God intended. And that's how long ago this prophecy was made. So Isaiah 53, 10, we're going to pick it up right here. It says, yet it pleased the sorry, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. The him here is the Messiah that would come 740 years later. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. This describes the work that Jesus was about to do, but God was going to be doing to him the hurting, the pain. This is not a mean father. You might be thinking, wow, that's mean. But this is a father that is so full of love that he asks his son to partner with him in a plan to save a world that's full of sinners, but that God loves them. A father that would punish his willing son for the guilt of you and me and every other sinner in this world. The event we're going to look at today is the final crossroads in the life of Jesus. And what we're going to see is Jesus understandably recoils from the horror that is about to happen. You know, horror is a funny thing. Yesterday was Halloween, and that's the day when a lot of people celebrate horror and even watch horror movies. And in some way, I can understand why people make horror movies and why people watch horror movies. And if you think about it, think about it this way. Horror movies are our attempt 
as people to describe what it what it means to be cut off from hope to be scared what jesus is going to go through today is the ultimate not just horror movie but horror experience and if we flip it around we can say every horror movie that has ever been made is simply our attempt our futile attempt to describe what it's going to feel like to to experience hell every horror movie is a futile attempt to de- to describe the horrors of the realities of hell and and there's been some awfully horrible horror movies made terrifying but none of them compare to what the reality of hell is the hopelessness the pain and sorrow this is all uh described for real in the bible and every horror movie is just a sad attempt to try to put it in some form of art that can be understood and yet through this evening where jesus basically is going to start experiencing the horrors of hell this great test that jesus is going to go through jesus is going to endure and he's going to choose to do god's will and become the sacrifice for sinful men um again in in isaiah it says it was the will of the father to kill his beloved son so that he would not have to kill you and me jesus goes through the unspeakable horrors of this evening so that you and i never have to experience it if we will accept his substitute for us there's a uh, uh, um, hymn written in 2009 by Stuart Townsend and Keith Getty, uh, which uh, describes this evening in Gethsemane. And so I'm going to read to you the words of this hymn because I thought it was appropriate for what we're studying tonight. To see the King of Heaven fall in anguish to his knees, the light and hope of all the world now overwhelmed with grief. What nameless horrors must he see to cry out in the garden, Oh, take this cup away from me, yet not my will but yours, yet not my will but yours. To know each friend will fall away and heaven's voice be still, for hell to have its vengeful day upon Golgotha's hill. No words describe the Savior's plight, to be by God forsaken, till wrath and love are satisfied, and every sin is paid, and every sin is paid. What took him to this wretched place? What kept him on this road? His love for Adam's cursed race, for every broken soul. No sin too slight to overlook, no crime too great to carry all mingled in this poisoned cup. And yet he drank it all. The Savior drank it all. The Savior drank it all. Let's read our text that we're going to study today. Mark 14, 32. Then they came to the place which was named Gethsemane, which that word means 
an oil press or that is a place where olives were crushed to make olive oil. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James and John with him and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little further, fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, take, or all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them sleeping again, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Then he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. As I was studying for this, I, I found a quote from Tim Keller, and he just describes this, um, this section so well when he says, In the Garden of Gethsemane, he turns to his father, and all he can see before him is wrath, the abyss, the chasm, the nothingness of the cup. Jesus began to experience the spiritual, cosmic, infinite disint dis disintegration disintegration that would happen when he became separated from his father on the cross jesus began to experience merely a foretaste of that and at this foretaste at this foretaste he staggered jesus said we're going to break this down little little piece by little piece. Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. Jesus knows this is going to be his last night. So what he treasures most is communion with his heavenly father. And so that's what he seeks out. He's going to pray this evening. He's not going to sleep. He doesn't want to waste the last precious few hours he has alive sleeping. His treasure is his relationship with his heavenly father. And this leads us to an important question. What is your treasure? What is the treasure of your heart? Jesus brings his disciples along and he wants to show them what the treasure of his heart is. The treasure of his heart is God, his father. He loves that relationship. He honors his father. He is excited at all times to seek his father. And this night when his father turns his face away and asks him to drink a cup of, of God's wrath and suffering, 
is so horrifying to Jesus, but yet Jesus still loves his father and wants to please his father in all things and seek his father. So he says to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And then he took Peter, James, and John with him. Notice that, okay? We've always maybe thought of why he chose those three disciples, and lots of people have come up with lots of ideas. But it's interesting that these three were chosen to accompany him right next to him during this dark night. And it's really interesting because these three had all previously bragged about how great of friends of Jesus they were or disciples they were. James and John said a couple chapters ago that they should be seated at his right hand and at his left hand when he comes into his kingdom, when he is made the king. And they're like, we're your best friends, Jesus. We're James and John. We are, we are awesome. And Jesus said to them, are you guys able to be baptized with the cup that I'm going to be baptized with? And they're like, yeah, we're able. And Jesus was just like, guys, come on. They bragged about how good of friends they were of him. Peter, he had just finished in the, in the, um, on the way to this garden, the last study we had last week, he just finished bragging about how faithful he would be, that he would even go to the death before he denied Christ. So Jesus takes these three guys, these braggadocious, prideful, but they were truly his friends and he loved them. He took them, he chose them to go into this deep time of prayer with him. Now, it's, I want you to see this. These are the same, we've seen this before. These three guys partner with Jesus or these three guys chosen by Jesus to go in uh, to special places. And you might think, well, they were just his favorite. But actually, I think it's to teach us something as we look at this. These are the same three men, James and John and Peter, who accompanied him into the home of Jairus. And if you remember that story, Jairus had a daughter that had died and Jesus went into the room and he took John, James and Jordan with him and Jesus resurrected her from the dead. And these were the same three, James, John and Peter, were the same three chosen by Jesus to go up to this mountain uh, in northern Israel, and it was called the Mount of Transfiguration, where he was transfigured, where he, where they got to see who he really was. They saw his glory. They saw him shining and, and all this amazing power. These three were chosen to know him, who he really was. And then now in this garden of crushing death, this garden of Gethsemane, where he is going to be suffering more than he's ever suffered. Warren Wiersbe uh, explains and notes that these three events, they parallel what we see in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. And this is quite amazing to me. Philippians 3.10 says, That I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. In that verse, we see these three events basically summarized. That I may know him. That's the same as the Mount of Transfiguration, knowing who he really is. And the power of his resurrection. There's the home of Jairus where the, the little girl was resurrected. And we know Jesus is going to be resurrected, but Jesus has this power of resurrection. And that, sh that is shown right there. And then it says, and in the fellowship of his sufferings. And that's 
what we're going to see here in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so Peter, James, and John, they were invited by Jesus to truly know him, to be intimate with him, even though, get this, and think about this carefully, even though they were dorks, even though they were prideful, even though they were failures, Jesus invited them in to know him in every way. And I want you to apply that to yourself because some of us think that, man, Jesus is not interested in me and and this this is all just a joke. But it's not true because he has invited you into closer fellowship than even John and James and Peter got to experience because he has invited you to become part of his own body as these guys will as well. So Jesus uh, took Peter, James, and John with him. And then it says, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. And in the Greek, you cannot express any more emotion or horror than the words that are used to describe what Jesus is going through right now. He begins to experience a crushing, crushing, just like the olives that are crushed in the Garden of Gethsemane to produce the living oil that they needed, Jesus is being crushed. Jesus is starting to feel the sentence of being abandoned and left alone so that you and I would never have to be abandoned and left alone by God. Think about that. He turns to his face excuse me, he turns to the face of his father, which had always been full of love. The face that he's known for eternity, that he has been loved by and loved and had perfect communion with. This love that he had experienced from God, oh my gosh, so perfect and so extreme. Now he sees only wrath and separation and anger in God's face. How much anger? The anger and wrath of a billion eternities of hellfire staring back at him. The face that had only ever been love and acceptance and approval because of Jesus' perfection now is filled with all the wrath of God's righteous anger at every sin that has ever been committed. Every murder, every hatred, every everything. I could list them all, but you know what sins are. This is what's coming to Jesus' life in the next 24 hours. Jesus knows it. But know that right now, as he begins to pray, there is a way out. There is a way out. Jesus could just disobey God's will. He could do what he wants. Now, does that sound familiar to any of you? Save yourself and just let all men die. I'm going to throw up on the screen a little chart that shows uh, the differences and the parallels between the Garden of Eden and the Garden of Gethsemane. Isn't it crazy that these both of these Uh, amazing events both take place in a garden and they both uh, directly parallel each other. The Garden of Eden was delightful. As you can see on our chart, the Garden of Gethsemane was dreadful. Um, 
in the Garden of Eden, Adam, he parlayed or met with Satan and discussed things with him, where in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus ignores Satan, and instead he prays to his father and he speaks with his father in heaven. In the Garden of Eden, Adam disobeyed and sinned, where in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Savior, Jesus, suffered and obeyed. In the Garden of Eden, Adam was conquered by sin, whereas in our garden, Jesus conquers his own will, which would be the source of sin if he would let it fall from God's will. Adam took the fruit from Eve's hand, where Jesus took the cup from his father's hand. God sought for Adam in the garden, but in this garden of Gethsemane, Jesus sought his heavenly father. In the Garden of Eden, self-indulgence of Adam ruined every man that would ever be born. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, the self-denial and agony and suffering of Jesus restores and heals every man if they choose to accept it. Adam's attitude in the Garden of Eden was, my will be done. And Jesus' attitude was, obviously, thy will be done. Then he said to him, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Jesus, again, using the most intense words you could find in the language he spoke, he said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful and I'm going to die. I'm, this, is, this is the hardest thing. I, it's unto death. Luke twenty two forty four gives us a, another insight that we should probably talk about that says that as Jesus was going through this, he was sweating great drops of blood. And medically, scientifically, this is called hematologia. Hydrosis, hematohydrosis. I'm probably saying that wrong, but there it is. And this is a medical condition where your um, sweat glands are like a like a, a gland like this, and they're surrounded with all these blood vessels. And as the body goes through extreme emotional uh, stress, any kind of extreme emotional stress, the blood vessels constrict. And, and, and under extreme cases, they will restrict and constrict so much that they will pop and the blood will mix with the sweat. And as you sweat out the liquid, it is uh, filled with blood. And that's exactly what Jesus is going through. And this has been observed in cases in this world. Uh, it's pretty rare, but the cases have to be an extreme amount of stress and strain upon the, the mind and the soul of a person. Um, and this is what Jesus is going through. This is not just watching a horror movie and, get, and, the, and the hairs on the back of your neck standing up or getting that, that fast pumping beating of your heart that happens when you're, when you're worried or stressed about something. This is a billion trillion times more intense than anything you or I have experienced but it's what we deserve. As, we, as he experienced his beloved father, that he cares about more than anything, begin to turn his back away from him and to show him the cup 
of suffering and horror and terror and pain that he is going to be asked to drink in the next day. Jesus is very, very worried, very concerned. He knows what he's going to be going through, and it's terrible. So he says to his disciples, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. He shares what he's going through with his friends. And he says, stay here and watch. Then he went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. You guys got to understand that Jesus has lived in perfect relationship with his father for eternity past. There isn't, you can't measure the amount of time that he has existed perfectly with his father. And at this moment, we see that this perfect relationship, he's seeing it's going to be severed by sin, but not even his own sin, our sin. Jesus, as a man, And as a son, does not want to face the wrath and anger of God against sin. He knows how much God hates sin because he's God too. And he knows what sin deserves because he knows what he would do if he was punishing sin. And that is an eternity of hell. And separation from God. Sin causes separation And Jesus has never sinned, and he's innocent, and so he recoils in horror at the idea of being separated from his beloved Father when he doesn't have to be. But above all, as a perfect and obedient son, he will do the will of his Father out of love and obedience. And this is called surrender. Jesus is surrendering to the will of his Father. Is Jesus worthy of praise and honor and all of our abandoned attention and faith? Should we follow him? Yes, absolutely. Think about the things and people in your life that, that you're passionate about. Have any of them ever sacrificed everything that they've ever known and loved and want for you and what was best for you. That's what Jesus does. Does all the things you really care about deeply, do they have your best interests at heart? Jesus does. Now it said something interesting here. In Hebrews chapter 5, we're going to read Hebrews chapter 5 verses 7 and 8 now that highlights something very, very interesting here about Jesus submitting and surrendering and and obeying his father, even though he didn't want to. Let's look at what Hebrew says. It says, while Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with a a loud cry and tears. So it, it gives us some information that we didn't have in our story, that Jesus was crying with a loud voice saying, God, and with tears, he was crying out to his father, saying, let this pass, let this cup pass from me, let this hour pass from me. He says he cried out with prayers and pleadings with loud cry and tears to the one who could rescue him from death. He said he knew that God could rescue him. Hebrews says, and God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God. 
Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience through the things he suffered. Now, when it says he learned obedience, Jesus isn't learning something like, oh, this is what it means. No, it means he's learning the full meaning and he is learning the full cost of obedience. In other words, he's experiencing the full cost of obedience. For him to obey, he is going to have to suffer more than any human being has ever suffered. That is what God is asking him. His father is asking him, son, I want you to suffer and die for people who hate you and hate me and don't deserve it. But I love them anyway. And that's what it means that Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered. And it says here that the father answered him. He answered him. But he answered him not by taking away the cup, but he answered him by giving him strength to endure the cup. God the Father gave him the spirit to obey and to do his will, even though it was impossible and it was painful. God was able to save him from death, but he, cho he chose to save us instead. I'm going to say that again because you didn't really get it at its fullness, and neither did I. God was able to save Jesus from death, but he chose instead, instead to save us from death. God is so glorious. God is so wonderful. Who would do that? Who would do that for us? Nobody but him. So we got to ask a question now. We're going to apply this to our lives, this Garden of Gethsemane. We're going to ask, how do we deal with our own Gethsemane? When we get to that day and that night where we know God's will and we don't want to do God's will and we need God's strength to do God's will, and maybe that's today for you. Maybe God's will for you is to endure in your marriage and to persevere and to keep going. Maybe God's will is for you in, in parenting to to honor God and to do the tough things in parenting that you need to do without giving up. Maybe God's will for you is, as, as a child, to obey your parents. Not what you want to do, but what God wants you to do. Maybe God's will for you today is, is um, involving work, and you need to love people at work that are not lovable and not, and it's impossible. And so you're in the Garden of Gethsemane, and you know that pain is coming and hurt is coming what do we do in the Garden of Gethsemane? Well, the answer to that is we need to do exactly what Jesus did. We can do exactly, we can deal with it the way that Jesus dealt with it, and that is with prayer. Prayer. There's six kinds and, and, and aspects of prayer that we see in Jesus' life. In, in this story right here that we just read. And I'm just going to highlight them for you. And I want you to write them down and think about them and apply them to your own life. Number one, Jesus had dependent prayer. When you need to do God's will and you don't want to, you can pray a dependent prayer. That's when he said, all things are possible for you, God. All things are possible for you. That shows 100% dependence upon God and on him alone. He's not saying all things are possible for me to do on my own. He's saying all things are possible for you. In other words, I depend on 
you, God. I'm going to depend on you. I don't want this. I don't like this, but I'm going to depend on you. That's how to pray, number one. Number two, you can have, you, you can pray an intense prayer. When he, he was, it says he was troubled and deeply distressed. A lot of people say in prayer, or they think somehow in prayer, you need to be composed and you need to, to always say, you know, Father God, and you need to always say in Jesus name, amen. But Jesus here, he prays raw, open, broken prayers. God help me. He was troubled and deeply distressed. He was honest about what he was feeling. These are the, this is intense prayer. So number one, a dependent prayer. Number two, intense prayer. Number three, honest prayer. He said, clearly, take this cup from me. He did not want to have to drink this cup. He did not want to be abandoned by his father. He did not want to be separated from God. He prayed honestly. He didn't try to impress God. Oh, God, you know, I always want to do what you want me to do. He did not say that. He was honest and said, God, I don't want this because of these reasons. I don't want this. He was honest. Number four, he was honest, but he had a submissive prayer. He said, nevertheless, nevertheless, So this is what I want, God, but nevertheless, it doesn't matter what I want, but what you want. So a submissive prayer. So you're adding these things together. Okay, I'm going to have a dependent prayer. I'm going to have an intense prayer. I'm going to really seek God. I'm going to have an honest prayer where I'm going to let him know how I'm feeling. I'm going to, but I'm going to also submit. I'm going to have a submissive prayer. And number five, I'm going to have an intimate prayer. He prays when he says, Abba, Father. The word Abba was the the Aramaic or, or Hebrew word Papa. It was a, the word that they used as an intimate uh, word for their father, their Papa, their daddy. And that's how Jesus approached God. And that's how he prayed. Not very formal, but very informal and intimate. And that's uh, a lesson for us when we're going through the deep parts, the deep dark times where we're trying to uh, seek God, and we're going through um, the, the struggles that are being described here. Know that God loves you, and he's your daddy, and he is going to be gracious to you. He is going to be merciful to you. Number six, he prayed with a surrendered heart, where he said, not what I will, but what you will. He was submissive, he said, nevertheless, and he was surrendered, saying, I want Not what I want, but what you want. I surrender my will to you. Then it says, then he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Prayer is what strengthens the spirit. Jesus here, he just nails Peter with what was really going on. Peter, when he walked in the spirit, he said a lot of great things and he he knew what the right thing to do was. But when he walked in the flesh, he was completely incapable of doing the right thing. And it's, Jesus gives us the very clear answer here. Prayer is what strengthens the spirit and prayer is what keeps us away from the flesh. It's just the way it works. We need a strong spirit 
so that we can do God's will or anything else that's good. We can't do those things by our flesh. Peter does things by the flesh, in the flesh. And we know that because he refuses to pray. He doesn't want to. He doesn't feel like he needs to. Because, as we studied last week, at this point in his life, Peter is prideful and he's not convinced of his need for God. But if we would apply this same standard to our life, how much do we pray? And when we pray and when we don't pray, are we not praying because we are prideful and we don't really feel that we need God? Jesus prayed because he knew that he needed God. We're going to look a little bit more at this next week, but Peter had this result of of his prayerlessness that we're going to see. Um, When crisis came, because Peter, Peter was not praying and he wasn't strengthened in his spirit, he reached for the wrong sword, as we're going to see next week. And he's going to cut off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. Peter does damage to another human being, which is very characteristic of people who don't pray. We can become hateful or hurtful or bitter or ugly in our relationships and our dealings with other people when we don't pray. But I want you to real quick just contrast that with Jesus and his results of praying. Jesus did pray. And look at what happens. Jesus begin, This passage that we're studying begins with Jesus on his face, and it ends up with him on his feet, ready to go. It begins with Jesus ready to give up, and it ends with Jesus ready to get started on his sacrificial mission. It begins with Jesus wanting to walk away, and it ends with him ready for the confrontation. He is just energized. And that's what happens when we go to the Lord in prayer. Why does that happen? Well, it, it, because it's the law. It's the rule. It, it has to happen that way. Why? Because the Bible says so. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31, it says, Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles, and they shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. And this is a famous text that we all know, but really think about it. Jesus has just showed us that it's true. Those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. So tell me, friends, why do we neglect our time in waiting upon the Lord? Why do we say that can wait instead of waiting upon the Lord? Instead of saying everything else can wait until I've had time to pray. That's how we should be. That's what Jesus exemplifies for us. Pray. Our text goes on and says, Again, he went away and prayed, and he spoke the same words, again, talking with God directly, all the things that we just studied. And then he returned and found them sleeping again, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And then he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. Behold, the hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So Jesus confirms his full surrender to God three times. Three times. 
that shows us that Jesus is fully surrendered. He didn't just do this once. He, for three times, he confirms, this is what I'm doing. I don't want to do this, but I'm going to submit to your will, God. I'm going to do it. I see that his spirit, his flesh, and his soul are all completely surrendered to God's choice and God's will. And it's going to be proven. As his body, his flesh, is ripped apart and beaten and destroyed, and his soul is is even destroyed, and his spirit absorbs the wrath and hellfire of God. It shows that he did this. He was committed and surrendered to God's will. And so the question remains, is ours? Is our life surrendered to God and to his will? Are you willing to be betrayed and to forgive those who betray you? Are you willing to be hurt and to respond with kindness? Are you willing to be hated and to love in response? And the answer is generally no, we're not. The only way that we can is by going through our own Garden of Gethsemane where we go through a surrender. We fight it out with God and we say, I don't want to do this, but I'm going to do your will. This is a battle that goes on in our hearts. And this battle that goes on in the heart always comes before the practical test. The heart always comes before the test. You will decide in the dark of the night what you will do in the day. You will have to go through Gethsemane before you have to go through the cross. Your heart will always be tested before your life and actions are tested. And when you're in that dark place where your heart is being tested and you're being questioned about what you're going to do, prayer is the answer. Surrender to God like Jesus. This night teaches us what we, what we got going on, guys. This night teaches us that we must wait upon God, that we must surrender everything to his will. We cannot hold anything back and say, that's mine. Don't touch it. I don't want to go through that. I don't want to give that to you, God. Nothing. He accepts nothing but complete surrender, full and complete surrender. How do, how do we do this? Let me tell you, you let God search you. You get alone You open the Word of God, the Bible, and you read it with humility and faith. And the Bible is going to show you, it's going to reveal to you, it's going to be like a a light shining on cockroaches scurrying away in the dark. And that's going to be your heart. The Bible gets it done and it will convict us of what we have going on, what we're holding on to. The Word of God will do that. So you let the Word of God search you and all you have to worry about is is responding and having humility and faith as you open the Word of God. Surrender can be described by these two attitudes of humility and faith. And you can read God's will for your life today as you read the Bible. It's right there in the Word. And He knows how to, how to make you see it when you pick it up and read it with all your heart. It's right there in front of you. You can know God's will. You can enter into your own Garden of Gethsemane today. 
But I know that most of us actually won't do this. Most of us are too comfortable in our own life. We're comfortable being Americans. We're comfortable being middle-class people that, that don't really have a need and we're not really scared of much. You can seek God with all your heart today and he will show you his will. He'll show you what you're holding on to and you can have this war and this battle, but you might not do it. I know some of you aren't going to do it because you don't care. You don't care. You're not willing to know his will because you don't really want to do anything but your own will. And what I would say to that is, God, have mercy on that soul. God can have mercy, but you got to cry out to his mercy, for his mercy. And some of you aren't going to do it because you're just confused. You're not sure how to seek God, and I just want to clearly make it so simple to you. Just open your Bible and read. He promises that it's not about you and your ability to understand or to figure it out or to even do anything you read about. It's just he's going to show you his will and then he's going to offer you his grace. And you're going to have to either confess that you can do it or you can't do it and you're going to accept his grace or you're going to pridefully go off in your own way and either try to do his will or just ignore it and do your own will. He has promised to speak to any heart that will seek him. And your heart will be changed and your heart can come alive if you choose to get alone and seek him alone today. It can happen today. It will happen today if you seek him. Jesus doesn't lie. He will do it for you. You just have to give him a chance, guys. Jesus did what we never could do. He obeyed when it cost him everything. And Jesus has made a way for us to be forgiven and to be helped in our garden of Gethsemane. He will come to you and he will fill you with his very own spirit. You know, that spirit that's strong and and always obeys God. That same spirit is what Jesus is offering us. And all we have to do is ask him, in humility and faith. Let's pray and wrap it up for the day. God, I pray that you would be merciful to us. Uh, Many of us don't care about you. Many of us don't want to even finish this Bible study. Don't want to take a moment to open the word and get alone with you. And God, I just pray that you would have mercy because we don't know what we're doing. We are so blind to the fact that Satan is leading us with chains tied around our neck straight to hell that we don't give a care because we're blind to it. In fact, we're marching right along with him. And your voice and your mercy is being heralded out, being called out. And we so often just plug our ears. 
And we just want to be comfortable and keep going in, with what we know. And we want to do our own will. God, I pray that you would wake us up out of our slumber. I pray that you would forgive us and be merciful to us. In Jesus' name I pray.